Good morning. A crackdown against an opposition party in Pakistan, Venezuelan migrants at the U.S. southern border, and an offensive by Ukraine claims gains near the city of Bakhmut. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for the week ending May 20th, 2023. Wednesday, police surrounded the home of former Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan, claiming he was protecting dozens of people wanted in violent protests. The demonstrations were a response to Khan's arrest over accusations of corruption that angered his many followers. The opposition leader was released over the weekend and returned to his home in Lahore. Khan says his arrest was motivated by his popularity that has only grown throughout Pakistan since he was toppled from power. On a TV program, Khan says he's facing the possibility of a third attempt on his life. The reason why my life is in danger is because all the 12 parties coalition, the lead between them and us has grown so wide now. Since we were ousted from power in the last few months, out of the 37 by-elections, we have swept 30 of them. They do not want to see me in power. And therefore, the thing is either to remove me put me in jail, disqualify me, or have me killed. Pakistani authorities have said they would prosecute civilians involved in recent anti-government protests in military courts. Amnesty International says the move would violate international law. Khan alleges some of his supporters were being tortured in police custody and demanded the immediate release of female detainees. A professor of religion and world politics based in Pakistan is Junaid Ahmad. He says the moves against Khan and his political party are fascist. Now you can genuinely say that the conditions have become extremely repressive and fascist. The idea was to just uh, detain Khan and see if, if they can get, if the military establishment and the 12-party government coalition that are working in cahoots together could just kind of detain, arrest Khan, get him out of political life in some type of gradual way. Of course, the outpouring of support, basically the complete bogusness of the charges against him uh, compelled the chief justice of Pakistan to release him. After the release and when the powers that be of Pakistan realized Khan and his support is well and alive in more than 80% of the country, they have embarked on uh, one of the most severe crackdowns in the history of the nation. We don't know the exact numbers. Around 7,000 PTI, the political party of Imran Khan, workers are in jail. They are now being said what is the most alarming news that we have gotten is that they will not be tried in civil courts, but in fact, army courts, military courts, where, of course, a lot of the due process clauses will simply not apply. Where's the United States in all this? The United States has issued statements saying respecting this rule of law from the beginning. It seems like it may say something more. We have not heard it yet. Clearly, we are hearing it now from human rights organizations. Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have put out statements on this. We have received some reports also coming out from Washington think tanks on the situation. The situation is so, so embarrassingly repressive that the U.S. will probably have to make the usual formal statements of saying that, well, due process and human rights and all of these things should be respected. But so far, we have not heard anything loud and clear. 
nor from, say, uh, another important country, the United Kingdom, what many call the London plan to basically try to get Khan and his political party completely disqualified from political life in Pakistan. And one of the ways, Paul, they have tried to do that is throughout this process, while the peaceful protesters were trying to protest for the release of Imran Khan, the state unleashed its own, uh, what we call, agents provocateurs, its own pretended uh, civilian protesters, just pretending to be civilian protesters, who then engaged in burning and looting and the violence, etc. And the state wants to pin that blame on the entire political party and the leadership. Every single statement from the leadership and Imran Khan had explicitly stated that these must be peaceful protests. And we're talking, Paul, you know now, a year of this, of peaceful protests. So all of a sudden, in one day, they all, uh, they all become violent. It's not absolutely farcical, but it's simply a reflection that all of these power centers, Khan is up against every single power center, not only in the country, but maybe in Washington as well. They really are trying their best to wipe them out. What is the final uh, outcome of all this, you think? Finally, we are beginning to see some international outcry. I think it's been far too late the way that human rights organizations and others have been responding. For example, even the, the International Committee to, to Protect Journalists, etc. We haven't heard anything, despite the fact that that has been one of the major victims of all of these journalists, have been one of the major victims of this entire process, media, completely controlled by the state, etc. Journalists so, have been arrested. Oh, absolutely. Arrested and disappeared. We are talking about journalists being treated just like another supporter or PTI worker and member, etc., disappeared, arrested, tortured. It's all of this is going on right now. So the internationalization of the awareness of what's going on may mitigate the more excessive parts that we are seeing occurring right now. What's it mean to be arrested if you're part of this in Pakistan, if you're part of the PTI or something? What does that mean to be detained and picked up? Civilians, literally, you have them on video jumping out of military tanks joining the protesters and then being at the forefront of violent outbursts of burning, looting, and, and killing. Who's actually doing this? The force in Pakistan that is actually capable of doing the mechanics of all of this is, of course, the military intelligence apparatus, particularly a political wing of the military intelligence agencies that are doing this because the fact of the matter is there's one simple thing we must realize the military was probably the most respected despite all of its corruption flaws and everything in the history of pakistan a most respected institution because it was a fairly disciplined and unified institution it is now turned into a completely rogue institution and they hate the fact that imran khan is calling it out for that. The civilian politicians have always been these corrupt mafia, feudal family dynasties. So they were very easy to just dismiss, and they should be. They should be criticized. But the military was kind of held up on a pedestal. That's been gone, and I think that that has really uh, gotten their wrath against Imran Khan right now. So they are the ones, but of course the civilian government is totally on board of what's going on, obviously, because they have to compete against the Khan. Are they going to cancel the elections? That's a big issue now. There were 
several elections now. There are provincial elections to be held in Punjab, the biggest province in the country, in KPK on May 14th, suspended. The Chief Justice of Pakistan right now, the Supreme Court justices, all of their lives are being threatened, not just Imran Khan, by the same deep state, if you can call it, national security state of Pakistan. They are under pressure right now. So it is really a fascist conditions. Elections are supposed to happen in these provinces and elections are supposed to happen nationally as well. Yes, the whole idea is, of course, postpone elections indefinitely until Khan and his political party is out of the political field. What's happening to people when they get picked up? I mean, they bust down their door at three in the morning and drag them out and throw them into a black mariah and take them somewhere. Is that how it's happening? Absolutely. This has been one of the worst situations in that regard, in the sense that it's not just kind of the protesters they're picking off the streets. They're going to houses. They're picking up the uh, PTI supporter or a protester or so on, but also picking up their family members, harassing their family members, threatening their family members. Many horrible, horrible, horrendous instances threatening to rape their family members. It is really abominable. Where do they take them? They're in all of these jails, some of the more prominent leadership. The entire, by the way, leadership. Khan didn't even know about this while he's sitting in his own jail. The entire leadership, virtually the entire leadership, has also been jailed of the political party. You say they're being abused in some way? Absolutely. We have uh, instances of beatings and torture, etc. There's torture going on and beatings, forced confessions, etc., especially against their leaders in order to disqualify the political party. Paul, what they want to do is to equate the Pakistan Tariqi Saf, PTI, the political party of Imran Khan, as a terrorist organization, the equivalent of like the Pakistani Taliban. That's what they want to do. And so they're trying to get confessions from their leaders, in fact, told us to go out and do all this and engage in violence. And Junaid Ahmad is a professor of religion and world politics based in Pakistan. In a speech Wednesday, Khan says he's never encouraged his supporters to use violence. And United States Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said Friday that authorities faced difficult circumstances along the border with Mexico days before pandemic-related asylum restrictions end. There is no question that this is going to be extremely challenging. I do not want to understate the severity of the challenge that we expect to encounter. Uh, the, the border is a very, as I said at the very outset, it is a difficult situation. It requires not only a community of action on this side of the border, but it requires a community of action south of our border, not only with our Mexican partners, but with other countries throughout the region. And indeed, we have an international approach to an international uh, challenge. Uh, what I've seen on the ground in my visit to McAllen and to Brownsville is no different than what I've seen in my more than 15 prior trips to the border as the Secretary of Homeland Security. Mayorkas says there was a surge of Venezuelan migrants near Brownsville, Texas, for unknown reasons. On Thursday, two-thirds of 6,000 migrants held by Border Patrol in Texas were from Venezuela. Mayorka says Mexico agreed this week to take Venezuelans who entered the U.S. illegally, along with migrants from Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua.
A visiting professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies, Adrian Pine, is co-editor of Asylum for Sale, Profit and Protest in the Migration Industry. She tells the news Venezuelans are attempting the perilous journey because U.S. sanctions have wrecked Venezuela's economy. They're leaving directly because of the U.S. hostile unilateral coercive measures, which are a form of economic warfare, just as when the United States is supporting coups in countries like Bolivia, like Honduras, like Brazil, that is forcing people to flee. If we stopped intervening in these incredibly hostile ways, we wouldn't be seeing this migration on the border. That's the deterrence that we need, not deterring people whose lives have already been devastated from seeking refuge. Pine adds the sanctions began not with Donald Trump, but President Barack Obama. Venezuelan outmigration really began in 2015 directly in response to the impacts of the sanctions that Obama implemented upon declaring Venezuela an enemy state, basically. And sanctions are a form of collective punishment. They're really a form of war that for Venezuela have been devastating. That not only are they preventing trade between Venezuela and the United States, but they're punishing other countries that would engage in trade with Venezuela. And this blocked Venezuela from exporting oil, which was it's, it has more oil than any other country in the world, but it hasn't been able to refine it or export it. And what this has meant for Venezuelans is just economic devastation. It's had tremendous health care consequences and other social consequences. And Venezuelans are, beginning with those sanctions, started out migrating. Prior to that moment, it had been a migrant receiving country. It's already been eight years that Venezuelans have been leaving in large numbers and mostly staying in South America. But more recently, a lot of Venezuelans who have experienced great xenophobia and racist treatment throughout other South American countries, many have come through the Darien Gap. It's a very dangerous journey up through Central America and Mexico, believing that because the United States has the U.S. government and media have really used the issue of Venezuelan outmigration as a way to criticize the Maduro administration, even despite the fact that it's really the sanctions that caused this migration. They're thinking they're going to get a good reception. But the fact is, most Venezuelans who do not have the kind of privileges that the Biden administration has set up that they require of them to be able to enter are stuck on the Mexico border, right? Like they're not able to enter. So the Venezuelans who are here have had the luck to be able to cross the border and, as you said, are working on setting up their lives, the difficult the difficult process of being an immigrant. But the Biden administration has not opened up its arms or borders to Venezuelans any more than they have any other group of migrants, despite the fact that they're using them to claim that they're fleeing from a socialist dictatorship, which couldn't be far from the truth. Do they have protected status? Venezuelans are allowed to come through a parole system. There's a limited number of Venezuelans that also includes Cubans and Haitians and Nicaraguans. In order to get access through the parole system, they need to have a passport. They need to be able to afford international commercial air travel. In other words, they can't have traveled through Mexico. And they need to find a U.S.-based sponsor who's willing to pay for all of their fees. So this is basically a class issue. Poor Venezuelans are not able to access 
access this program. If you're a business person who uh, whose television station you felt was impacted or you yeah. had money invested in that TV station, let's say, you could get out of there and move your money to Florida and live over there. Absolutely, and that's very much true. I mean, asylum has always been used as a political tool in the United States. The rhetoric that we hear about it is that it's, you know, to protect people to who are, are fleeing dictatorships. But, but if you look statistically at who gets granted asylum the most, it's people who are, are, are leaving countries that are, the, that are state enemies of the United States. So you had a period when people were leaving Venezuela because of the harmful impact of U.S. sanctions. And at the same time, Hondurans were fleeing because they were in a narco dictatorship that was propped up by the United States government. And of course, Juan Orlando Hernandez, the former president of Honduras, is now being tried in U.S. federal court for his drug trafficking and arms activities, and Hondurans were not being granted asylum anywhere near the rates that Venezuelans were while claiming that they were fleeing a dictatorship. So it's entirely political, but it's something that happens in these individual immigration courtrooms. Um, taking their money out of the bank, yeah. reducing the amount of foreign currency and currency that's available in Venezuela while bringing their expertise in oil companies and things like that with them. That is a much bigger political project of the ridiculously, embarrassingly failed U.S. attempted coup to attempt to put Juan Guaido, this nobody who never ran for president, into office in January 2019. And the charade went on. I mean, it, it only ended a few months ago when the Venezuelan opposition came together and roundly very clearly stated, we don't want anything to do with this clown. He's an embarrassment. But I'm here in Washington. They're still parading him around town as if he was some hero. He was, but, it, but that served as an excuse for the United States to confiscate billions of dollars worth of Venezuelan assets. It's been this war on this country's economy precisely because the people chose to take a different path than neoliberal capitalism, which is what the United States is exporting. Adrian Pine is co-editor of Asylum for Sale, Profit and Protest in the Migration Industry. Meanwhile, Secretary Mayorkas reaffirmed plans to finalize a new policy by Thursday, making it extremely difficult for migrants to seek asylum if they pass through another country like Mexico on their way to the U.S. border. Closer to home, New York City has begun to convert public school gymnasiums into housing for migrants. The move to use the gyms as shelters with six weeks still to go in the school year touched off an immediate backlash. Some parents organized protests and are threatening to keep their kids home once migrants arrive. Mayor Eric Adams, a Democrat, acknowledged Tuesday the use of the schools was drastic, but insisted the city is out of options. New York has also placed migrants on buses bound for northern suburbs, prompting lawsuits from upstate officials. Adams accused some upstate officials of racism in keeping the migrants out. And we must be clear on what we're doing, because some people try to compare it to what uh, Abbott did. We're paying for it. We're only taking volunteers. We are communicating with uh, the officials up there on what we're doing. Now, some may not like it, but people can't say we, we're not communicating. Abbott did not pay. Abbott compelled people. And one, uh, I remember reading a New York Post article of a 9-11 call that's saying that people were being held on buses. That's not what we're doing. And we are coordinating, explaining to our colleagues in the state that this is a this is a statewide issue. It's not like uh, New York just all of a sudden said we're just going to send people 
and 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 transport to some other municipalities. We're coordinating with others, and it took us over a year because we tried to hold on and do this the best we can on our own. And what we're sending sending is a quarter of one percent <laughs> of what we have. A quarter of one percent. And so when you look at uh, the the county exec day. Uh, I mean, this guy has a record of being anti-Semitic, you know, his racist comments, uh, you know, his thoughts and how he responded to this. Really, it shows the lack of leadership. Uh, you know, I thought he was the Texas governor, the way he acted. We're going to continue to do, we're going to challenge the legal challenges, uh, and we're going to continue to pursue. You can't use the courts to deny people to move around the state of New York. Mayor Eric Adams. Adams has repeatedly said that New York, a city long known for its openness to immigrants, has reached its limit on new arrivals. He's called on the federal government to help, both in providing funding to the city and in slowing entrances at the border. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Turkish President Recep Erdogan announced Wednesday Russia has agreed to an extension of a deal allowing Ukraine to ship grain through the Black Sea to parts of the world struggling with hunger. The United Nations helped broker the deal last summer between the two warring sides. The deal has allowed over 30 million metric tons of Ukrainian grain to be shipped, more than half going to developing nations. Meanwhile, a Chinese mediator has a meeting with Ukraine's foreign minister in discussions towards ending the war. China says it's neutral in the conflict and wants to be a mediator. Politically, China has supported Moscow. A Chinese-sponsored peace plan was proposed in February, but rejected by NATO and the United States. In related news, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa said Russian President Putin and Ukraine's leader Zelensky have agreed to host an African leader's peace mission in Moscow and Kiev. Ukraine's spring offensive, meant to drive Russian troops from the occupied portions of the country, has become mired in confusion with summer only weeks away. Ukraine has said it's delayed the offensive because of a shortage of weapons from the West. On Tuesday, the New York Times print edition published an open letter by a group of former high-ranking security experts and veterans as a full-page ad. The letter from the Eisenhower Media Network calls for a diplomatic end to the Russia-Ukraine war. Among the signers to the peace letter is Matthew Ho, a former Marine Corps officer and State Department official. He says even in the digital age, the print edition of The Gray Lady is influential with decision makers. A lot of the people who are still reading the print edition the influence they have. Mm. Copies of the print edition are in various think tanks, they're in various universities, libraries. You sort of need the whole paper and the position and positioning of everything in the pages things are on are very important to a lot of people. The visual of it, like this big mm. ad and then people, you know, some of it were people, yeah. you know, they, they took the cost. They thought this was so important that they wanted to do this in this way to kind of express yeah. this. And some of it too, Paul, is while the Times, the Journal, the Post, they have printed op-eds from individuals saying, hey, we need more diplomacy, we need to look at things differently in Ukraine. Tom Friedman, a couple of years ago, wrote a thing saying it was diplomatic malpractice that brought us to this point. So there have been those voices, but they've all been individual and solitary and then drowned out, of course, by the larger chorus who are going along with the narrative that the only way out of the Ukraine war is more war. By doing this, by putting ourselves out there as an institution, as an organization, by having a group of people, including some very significant senior people signing on to this letter, hoping that creates space for other people to do the same, other institutions, other organizations to file suit. 
give them kind of a, a feeling that there's space for them to make these arguments as well. They wouldn't be alone. And so we were happy to kind of view ourselves a bit as a trailblazer in that sense. And hopefully other organizations, institutions, groups will follow. Let's focus on these two maps because they could be shocking to people to see it. I mean, all the U.S. military bases throughout NATO aimed at Russia. And then below it, what would it be like if the shoe was on the other foot? Missiles in Canada and Mexico, Cuba, Dominican Republic, etc., which is, does not exist, but let's just think of for a minute how we would feel in the similar situation. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The idea of this is something called strategic empathy, which is something that in the military we're taught. You would expect diplomats to be that type of empathy as well, and, and you'd hope that politicians would too, although I think most people view on politicians, you'd think of more as selfish and empathetic, right? This idea that when you're in the military, you are taught to look at the situation, the circumstances, the terrain from your adversaries, from the enemy's perspective. If you write the way the United States Marine Corps, United States Army write their combat orders, after you put down what the mission is, the second thing, so literally the second most important thing being put into an order written by an Army or a Marine Corps officer is how the enemy sees this. What do you expect the enemy to do? What's the enemy's most likely course of action? What is their most dangerous course of action? And that's how you respond. If you build defenses, if you're in the Army Marine Corps and you build fortifications, you need to go out and look at your base, look at your fortifications from the enemy's perspective. This is something that is not radical. This is something that is not overly compassionate or silly or not realist enough. This is exactly how you should be approaching these situations in foreign policy, in war, in diplomacy, by understanding the circumstances from your adversary's perspective. I read a book about Quezon battle in Vietnam, and that was in one side, the U.S. side totally arranged its forces in a way that it wanted to without any thought of what the other side was doing. And then they wound up shooting into the jungle for 18 months doing nothing. The great example is the Maginot Line that the French build after World War I that's going to keep them safe from the Germans. And the Germans look at that great fortress that stretched for dozens and dozens of miles, all cannons and everything else, and they said, oh, we can just go around it. So on a tactical or operational level, it's very important to do because, yeah, if if you build a, a fort and the enemy can just go around it, then why do you even build the fort? But on a strategic or a political level, it's even more so because you have to understand how your actions are going to affect who you're dealing with. How are they going to respond? What we get at here is this idea that there has been diplomatic malpractice by the United States. The chain of events that have occurred since the end of the Cold War brought Europe, Russia, brought Ukraine, brought the United States, NATO to this point, and it could have been averted. We assign blame to the Russians. We condemn their invasion. We condemn their war. We use the term criminal invasion to describe what Russia has done. At the same time, too, understanding that there was a chain of events. There were consequences to actions. There was a very real understanding among NATO and American officials for decades by enlarging NATO, by ignoring the fact that the Russians are saying, these are our red lines. We will act. This idea that we are now on this place and it was unavoidable or it would have happened regardless or that this is an organic event is just nonsense. And this idea that 
there was malpractice here. Diplomacy could have averted the war, and diplomacy can end the war. Wasn't John F. Kennedy who warned, don't ever humiliate Russia and put them in a corner? That's exactly right. And we, we lead the article with a quote from John F. Kennedy saying essentially that, particularly with a nuclear power, humiliating them, putting them into a corner, giving them no other option, giving them no choice. They get back into the maps and why we had that graphic there. of What would the United States do if we were in this position? What the Russians have said, their warnings, their concerns were ignored. Going back years and years now, senior Russian officials, including Vladimir Putin, would say things like, we have nowhere left to retreat. And then you see, of course, how the Russians acted in Chechnya. You see how they acted in Georgia. You see how they acted in Syria. You saw how they acted in Ukraine, whether it was the civil war they participated in in the east of the country, in their taking of Crimea in 2014 after what they saw as a coup occurring heave. This idea that they somehow wouldn't act as if they were just bluffing or that they could be managed or controlled really goes to show the incompetence by U.S. and NATO leadership allowing this to unfurl in the way it did and the fact that it wasn't averted. And now, of course, you have this great tragedy, this terrible suffering, this ruination of Ukraine, mm -hmm. where argument is that there is still time to bring it to an end diplomatically, that we can still find a way out of this. And this idea of keeping this stalemated war going on with the hope of victory is not just foolish, but that is criminal. Ho continues, the yearning for victory in the military can contradict common sense. One of the fears I think many people have who've been advocating diplomacy for, for years now, you get to a point where the other side says, you know what, we're just going to win this militarily. And we saw this in Afghanistan, where it would have been possible for the United States to enter into negotiations with the Taliban early on in Barack Obama's uh, presidency. However, the administration chose to escalate that war rather than negotiate. Uh, and what you then had, of course, was a desire for the United States to have military victory in Afghanistan, uh, rebuffing any attempts at negotiations. What happens when you don't achieve that military victory you then go to your enemy and say, you know, okay, now we'll talk. And that's the problem here is that Russia has made overtures, and we can debate their sincerity, but they have been there. And we saw talks even at the beginning of the war. We, have, we know that the former Israeli prime minister, Natali Bemenet, the Turkish foreign minister, a number of media sources, including Ukrainian media, have all very clearly said that, yes, there were talks between the Russians and Ukrainians early in this war to end the war. The, the talks were scuttled by NATO and the U.S. because they wanted victory. And so what happens when you don't get that victory? What occurs then? Particularly when the other side sees themselves as winning or has achieved the goals it's wanted. We have to remember, too, what the stated goals of Russia are in this war. It's not to conquer all of Ukraine. It's not to take over Kiev and put in a puppet government. That's not their goals, at least not, not that we've seen. Uh, their goals are the eastern part of the country, to have a corridor to Crimea, the ethnic Russian-speaking areas. And they've achieved that, more or less. The other goal is the destruction of the Ukrainian military, which is what they're doing. The Russians are measuring their results in terms of the destruction of the Ukrainian military and not in the amount of territory they've captured. And this is another aspect of, Paul, right, of strategic empathy, of not understanding your enemy, is when you start to then say that what you think their goals are or what you want their goals to be or what you, you believe their goals should be are not in line with what their goals actually are, then how do you at all 
ever interact with them? How do you ever engage them? How do you ever come up with a strategy of your own to counter or to deal with or to find a settlement if you yourself can't even come to terms with what the other side is saying they want? would have been much better, of course, if diplomacy had been allowed to, to go forward before the invasion of February 2022. It certainly would have been much better if it had been allowed to continue in those early weeks of the invasion. We will see whether the Russians really are interested in it or not. The American side, the NATO side, has been the one that has had heels dug in the most against negotiations. You know, as Americans who signed on to this letter, former national security officials, we believe that it is in the best interest of the United States and its goals for it to pursue a diplomatic solution to the war as quickly as possible. Matthew Ho is a former Marine Corps officer and State Department official. On Tuesday, the New York Times print edition published an open letter by a group of former high-ranking security experts and veterans calling for a diplomatic end to the Russia-Ukraine war. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo in national news. Earlier this month, a civil jury in New York determined E. Jean Carroll, who accused former President Donald Trump of rape and defamation, should be paid a total of $5 million in damages. The jury agreed with the 79-year-old Carroll that 30 years ago she was sexually abused by Trump in a dressing room at the Bergdorf Goodman department store in Manhattan. The jury didn't find Carroll was actually raped. Trump's lawyers didn't call witnesses, he never testified, and he didn't hear Carroll recount painful testimony about the attack. Trump, running to regain the presidency, in a statement called her case a complete con job and a hoax and a lie. The Carroll case brought attention to past misogynist statements by the former president, addressed in an earlier deposition in the same case. And you say, and again, this has become very famous in this video, I just start kissing them, it's like a magnet, just kiss, I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything, grab them by the pussy, you can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that that they can grab women by the pussy? Well, that's what, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true, not always, but largely true, unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. And in related news, Trump's former attorney general, William Barr, was asked by TV host Geraldo Rivera about Trump's fitness to be president. Is he fit to be president of the United States? Is Donald Trump fit to be president? Uh, This is the way I'll answer that, Geraldo, which is if you believe in his policies, he's the what what he's advertising is his policies. He's the last person who could actually execute them and achieve them. He does not have the discipline. He does not have the ability for strategic thinking and linear thinking or setting priorities uh, or how to get things done in the system. It is a horror show. When he's when you know when he's left to his own devices, and and so you may want his policies, but Trump will not deliver Trump policies. He will deliver chaos, and if anything, lead to a backlash that will set his policies much further back than they otherwise would be. That's a very but, direct answer. Thank you, General. <laughs> Trump's former attorney general, William Barr. In related news, Trump is being accused by at least three women of sexual misconduct. According to the Independent newspaper, Trump is alleged to have openly harassed young women on the White House staff when he was president. 
In more news, Deutsche Bank has settled a $75 million lawsuit with victims of accused sex predator Jeffrey Epstein, who killed himself in federal prison two years ago. And another bank with Epstein connections, J.P. Morgan Chase, is battling a suit by the government of the Virgin Islands, where Epstein owned his own island. The bank says some people in the government of the Virgin Islands were deeply involved in Epstein's wrongdoing. As part of the suit, J.P. Morgan has subpoenaed Elon Musk, another wealthy Epstein associate, asking for information on a Virgin Islands politician who the bank contends helped Epstein. And you're listening to The Torch. Stay tuned. Episode 2 is up next. Local stories affecting or originating New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thank you.